On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus then and now. Last time, Mike, we were following the Via Dolorosa here in Jerusalem, the, the way of the cross, and we've now got to the place in Jerusalem where the cross potentially could have been. Yeah, we are at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Actually, we're on the roof of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Our guide has managed to get us up here. And so the church is really down below us. And this is the location where from earliest times, Christians have believed that Christ was both crucified and buried. The first building that was put on site here, the first basilica, was built at the instigation of Queen Helena, Constantine's mother. Remember when Constantine became a Christian as emperor, he suddenly made it legal to be a Christian and suddenly began to sponsor churches all over the world. And his mother was particularly keen on coming here to the Holy Land and finding the very places where Jesus had been. And so the first church was built here at her instigation between AD 326 and 335. That church would eventually be destroyed by the Muslims and would be rebuilt again by the Crusaders. And the church that we have today largely dates from that time. It's experienced a, a number of um, events over the years. There was a, a disastrous fire in 1808 and an earthquake in 1927. So it's had to be rebuilt. And to be honest, it's a real hodgepodge of churches and chapels, and it can be quite confusing to find your way around it. It's quite dark and gloomy. I suppose some might say, well, that's appropriate because of what it's remembering. But we are here at a place where we are remembering the most crucial event in the whole story of our following of Jesus. Well, let's remind ourselves of where we can find that story in the Bible. Well, we can find it in all the Gospels, of course, but we're, we're going to carry on reading from Matthew's Gospel, which we've looked at in previous episodes on this final stage of the journey. And I'm going to read from Matthew 27 and verse 33. Now, we've just seen Jesus walking down what we now call the Via Dolorosa. So we read this. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it again in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. And in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. Ha, he saved others, they said but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down there from the cross and then we'll believe in him. 
He trusts in God. Well, let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And in the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it up to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. So a place of death and cruelty, in fact. We shouldn't underestimate what's actually just happened. No, absolutely. I mean, in a sense, the, the New Testament is very reserved in how it speaks about the crucifixion of Jesus. It doesn't go into gory details. But what we've done here is we've come to what would have been outside the old city walls in the time of Jesus. We've come to the place of crucifixion for the Romans, a place called Golgotha, the skull, and the Latin translation for that, by the way, was Calvaria, from which we get the name Calvary. Uh, but this was a common place. This, this was the place of execution. So there would have been those poles driven into the ground that we said earlier, Jesus carried his crossbeam to that place and came here to be crucified. So, yeah, we're in, we're in the midst of death here. And we're just really meters away from that outcrop of rock, Golgotha. Because as you go into the church of the Holy Sepulchre, you can go up a flight of stairs and there is a, an altar uh, that is over the rock base where it is said it was there, or certainly very close to there, that Jesus was crucified. Yes, this horrific, brutal death. So a very sacred place for many, many Christians who come here in their large numbers. And in fact, when you're inside, is it a little bit crowded very often? <laughs> Do you know what? It, it's normally hustling and bustling down there because, of course, everybody wants to come here. Uh, we've actually come at a time when uh, the tourist season hasn't really quite got fully going yet. But I mean, even since we've started recording here, we've seen a whole number of tourists from different nations starting to pass by. And people will come here, you know, certainly those who are fascinated in following the story of Jesus. But, but this church is sort of very special to Christians from a whole number of different Christian backgrounds. In fact, the, the church, the custody of the church is divided up between Armenian, Greek, Coptic, Roman Catholic, Ethiopian and Syrian Christians. And they've all got their own little bits and some bits of it are uh, shared between them. And there was a great hoo-ha many years ago about who should control it. And the Muslim rulers at that time said, listen, there's only one way to stop all this fighting. We'll give the key to a Muslim key holder and from that day to this, the same Muslim family acts as key holders to this sacred place. Sort of locking it up and opening it up every day. Absolutely, that's exactly what happens. But they couldn't trust that to any one Christian group in particular, feeling they'd probably end up claiming it. 
And I suppose because so many different branches of Christianity want to come here, if you like, and are represented here, that does present a challenge in itself because everybody has their own flavour of Christianity. Yeah, absolutely. And if you go into this building, you know, it is one of the most complex structures I think I've ever been through. There are several layers to it, some of which go several flights of stairs down into the bedrock. And it's almost like at every twist and turn, there's there's a different chapel or a different church belonging to a, a different denomination. It sounds like we've got a lot to thank St Helena for. Do you know what? We have, because in some ways, I think she was the first New Testament archaeologist. She clearly was, you know, uh, I think a very devout follower of Jesus. Now, whether Constantine himself genuinely was born again as a Christian or whether it was somewhat politically expedient, historians disagree over. But I think there's no doubt his mother was a very devout follower of Jesus. And uh, she poured money into coming to the Holy Land and, and having archaeologists start to look at places, dig in places, follow early Christian traditions. Because remember, although we're in the early third century, that's not that many generations away from Jesus. And how would they have passed on the story? How do we know that this is the site? Well, quite simply, they passed on those stories by oral tradition. The minute we say that in the West, we think it all got changed, didn't it? But you know, in a culture where things aren't written down, in a culture where you're forbidden to build your own Christian churches and so on, you only have one way of passing on your tradition, and that is to faithfully memorize and faithfully pass on. So I think it is extremely likely that the place where we are now is the site of the original Golgotha, the place where Jesus was both crucified and then at the far end of this church, a place where Jesus was buried. In fact, you can look uh, as you go to that far end of the church and you can see other stone tombs from the first century period. So we know that was a graveyard and that's what you'd expect there to be a graveyard near a place of execution. So while a place that we look at in our next episode, the garden tomb, reflects very much what tombs look like in the time of Jesus and are really helpful in us understanding that, I think where we are now, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, is much more likely to be the site of Golgotha, the place of execution and the place of Jesus' burial. And at that time, crucifixion wasn't that unusual. Others were crucified. Oh, absolutely. Crucifixion was ten a penny as far as the Romans were concerned. Um, the Romans hadn't invented crucifixion. It had actually been invented by the Phoenicians. And Rome came across this and thought, this is a rather good way of making death a painfully excruciating experience for those that we deem to be the worst of our opponents. So it was reserved for rebels, um, for runaway slaves, and it was an excruciatingly painful death. You were laid out on your crossbeam and great big iron nails and we found them. You know, they're probably about eight inches long, great big thick spikes really rather than nails. And those would have been nailed not through your palms as is so often shown in Christian art. Put a nail through your palm and hang you on a cross, your hand would rip out straight away. They were nailed through the wrist between the two bones in your wrist because that was a way of making sure you didn't slip down. 
So your left arm stretched out, bang, nailed in. Your right arm stretched out, bang, nailed in. And then the crossbeam would have been hoisted by ropes on top of the pole that was already there. And once you were there, then your feet would be taken. You were scrunched up somewhat sideways, your legs lifted up somewhat, again, to make it as painful as possible. And we know this because of skeletons that have been found of crucified people. So they were probably crucified somewhat hunched up and sideways uh, from their waist downwards rather than again as in traditional art. And then another spike was nailed through your two ankle bones. And there you were left to die. And it was a mixture of the sheer pain of being held there by nails, blood loss, but one of the main things as well was as you were hanging there, you, of course, would pull down on your wrists and you would want to catch a breath because now you can't because it's pulling against your lungs. And so you would pull up on your nailed wrist to try and catch a breath again. And it would be excruciatingly painful to pull up and you would let yourself down again. And then you needed another breath and pulled up again. So you've got this mixture of the pain of the nails. You are bleeding to death slowly. You are asphyxiating slowly. You are dehydrating. David, we are in, here in this heat about the time that Jesus was crucified, that time of day. I mean, it really is scorching and we're sitting in the shade here. So this was designed by the Romans to be not just execution, but the most painful execution ever. And you know what, I think we can forget that sometimes because walking around here as we have done in Jerusalem and throughout the Holy Land, you'll often see people, ordinary people and priests with crosses around their neck and they're often gold, aren't they? And it's almost become a piece of jewelry. But the cross was not a piece of jewelry. The cross was an instrument of torture. You know, to get the equivalent, it would be as if we walked around today with a necklace that had a hangman's noose, or for the USA, an electric chair hanging around your neck. Now that would bring home the stark reality of what crucifixion was really all about. And as you said, you're virtually at your last breath, so remarkable that Jesus actually spoke from the cross. It is, isn't it? How on earth he managed to find the ability to do that, I don't know. He said a number of things, a couple of them that stand out is Matthew referred there to two robbers being crucified next to him. But it's actually in, in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 23, where we record that one of those robbers uh, said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. We are here suffering because we did bad. You've done nothing but good. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus manages to find the breath to say, ah, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, instant, straight there to heaven with Jesus. Why? Because he put his faith in Jesus, the Messiah. Some of the other things he will speak over that time, like, you know, I'm thirsty. And they run to find a, a drink for him. Another remarkable thing is when he cries out in anguish, in Aramaic, and the Gospels keep it in Aramaic. It's as if, do you remember? Do you remember that haunting sentence that he said? So in a Gospel written originally in Greek, they 
record this Aramaic saying because they could never get it out of their heads. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did Jesus feel abandoned at that moment? Well, yes, he did, because at that moment, the human sin, the weight of human sin throughout the ages that he was carrying was cutting him off from his father. He's also quoting from Psalm 22, by the way, a psalm that ends on a, a note of triumph and victory. So he may have been despondent at that moment, humanly speaking, but it, he's also declaring he knows where this ends. And then Matthew's Gospel says, when Jesus had cried out again in the last voice, he gave up his spirit. Two things to note there. First of all, he gave up his spirit doesn't use there the usual word, then he died. Jesus once said, no one can take my life from me. And so he died at that moment because he sovereignly chose to give up his life. What did he say? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us, but John's gospel does. John's gospel tells us that the very last thing that Jesus cried out in the Greek text that John wrote was, Tetelestai, which we translate in our Bibles, it is finished. But you know, he was saying that not in the sense of, oh, it's finished, it's all over. Maybe it's all gone wrong. That word tetelestai was a word from the world of accounting. It was a word that was written on a bill when you went to pay it. Maybe you'd had some goods delivered, the bill came, you took the bill back to the merchant, you paid up, and these days you might get a rubber stamp on it saying paid or you might get a receipt, I suppose, these days. Well, in New Testament times, what happened is you paid that debt that you owed. The merchant would write tetelestai, which meant all paid, fully paid, nothing more to pay. What Jesus was crying out at that moment when he died on the cross was it's all paid for. What's all paid for? Every human sin that had ever been committed, Jesus was paying the price for when he hung on that cross just yards away from where you and I are sitting now. And having cried that out, he went, huh, and he gave up his life. And at that moment, for those that were there, what did they see and hear? Well, what they would have been expecting to hear was, you know, for some, oh, yeah, there goes another one that Rome's crucified. For his enemies who were watching, they were no doubt thinking, at last, that's the end of him. But something amazing happened, Matthew's Gospel tells us, at that very moment that the Lord of glory gave up his life here on earth. Let's read on from Matthew 27 and verse 51. At that moment, at that very moment when Jesus cried out, it's finished and gave up his life, gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks split and the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who died were raised to life. And they came out of their tombs and after Jesus's resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And when the centurion, that would have been the centurion in charge of the execution party, 
and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. And many women were there watching from a distance that followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. What was going on there? A whole mixture. There were some who at that moment, I'm sure, would have been terrified as, it's almost as if the one who brought forth creation into being at the beginning of time, that creation now heaves and groans with anguish at the moment that the Son of God chooses to give up his life. There's an earthquake. That earthquake splits that veil in the temple, that veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place where originally the Ark of the Covenant had been, although that of course was long gone and had disappeared in history, but the place where God was thought to reside and that temple split is as if God is saying, well, some people see it as God saying, there's no need to keep outside anymore. You're welcome to come in. Others have seen it as God saying, you can't keep me in here anymore. I'm coming out there. But powerfully symbolic that happened at that very moment. This earthquake even shook some of those tombs just a short distance away from where we are on the Mount of Olives. And some of the dead came back to life like Lazarus like the daughter of Jairus. Now, it wasn't a resurrection like Jesus, it was a restoration to this life. And this Roman soldier, who had crucified, no doubt, so many people in this place, suddenly sees that something incredible is happening here. This, this is no mere man that he has crucified. And he says those powerful words, surely this was the Son of God couldn't have spoken truer words. Who was responsible for the crucifixion and death of Jesus? Hmm. At one level, it was the Romans because they nailed him to the cross. And yet here's the interesting thing. There's never a hint of blame towards Rome in the New Testament. You could say it was the Jewish religious leaders. Not all the Jews. Now, I know in John's Gospel he talks about the Jews, but all scholars are agreed these days. John is using that as shorthand for the Jewish religious authorities, the power base that was against Jesus. One could say they were responsible, for they had cooked up evidence and had came up with trumped-up charges that had led to Jesus being crucified. They'd resolved they'd wanted to get rid of this man ever since Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. So one could say Rome, one could say the Jewish religious authorities, or one could say, what is the most amazing and mysterious answer that the New Testament actually gives? That the one who was really responsible was no one less than God himself. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's not think that this was something the Father forced on his Son. This was something the Father and Son and Spirit had agreed together from the beginning of time that this is what the Son would do. This is how he would serve as a Son, by giving his life as a ransom for many, as he put it in his teaching. So who was responsible ultimately 
God, because this is how much he loved people, that he was willing to send his own son to die on the cross, to pay the price not of his sins, he had no sins. At those trials, they, they couldn't even trump up any charges against him, he'd lived such a perfect life. But he died there on that cross to pay the price of our sins. And God loved us enough to send his son into the world to pay that price for us. Jesus has died. How do they treat his body? Well, do you know what? Normally, the Romans would have left it there for some time to be a warning to other people not to do what these people had done who were being crucified. Their bodies would just be left there to rot, to be eaten by the birds. But in Jesus's case, he has a friend who comes and asks for permission to take his body away and to bury it, to bury it not far from where we are, at the other end of this church of the Holy Sepulchre, in the rock there, the rock's actually been dug away over the years to expose the place. So you're almost at the, the base of what would have been the cave tomb now, but just, you know, 100 yards or so away from where we are. Well, let's read what Matthew goes on to tell us about what actually happened. We read in Matthew 27:57 that as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea called Joseph, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb, and he went away. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary was sitting there opposite the tomb. Now, the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead and this last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and by posting the guard. What strikes you about how that is recorded? I suppose there's a simplicity to it. And again, this is one of the things that authenticates the record of the Bible. There's no glamorizing of any of these things there's there's no building it up into something huge you know hollywood if, if they're making a movie would make a great big issue of all of this it is it is so simple so straightforward this follower of jesus this wealthy follower of jesus coming and asking pilate for permission to bury the body by the way one of the other gospels says pilate was surprised jesus had died so quickly it only taken a few hours could take days sometimes and so he sent a guard to make sure that he died and a spear is thrust into his side just to doubly make certain. So there's no doubt that this Jesus died. So all these theories that he didn't really die, he swooned and then in the tomb, you know, 
He came round again and managed to roll back the stone from the inside and overcome the guards and walk and convince his disciples he was gloriously risen. It's frankly nonsense. This guy was dead. And his friend and follower, Joseph of Arimathea, comes and asks to take his body away, to wrap it in simple linen. There's actually a, a stone inside that recalls the place where that was happening. It wasn't the very stone, because that particular stone has only been there since the, the 1800s. And so he wraps him in this linen, lays him in the tomb, and they roll the stone. And I suppose, you know, what I'm left with out of reading that story is, it's clear that for the disciples, this was it. This was the end of the story. Nobody was expecting a resurrection on the third day. In fact, the only people referring to it are the religious leaders who remember some teaching about it and so ask Pilate to put extra security on the tomb to make sure it can't happen. But there's absolutely no sense of expectation here. And yeah, you know, we knew what he said and we were there. I was there at that tomb waiting for him to come out. No, not at all. They put him in a tomb. They rolled the stone and they went away. It was over. It was finished. And this place where we are, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, first and foremost, brings home to us the death of Jesus and the end of the story as far as these first Christians were concerned at that moment. So what is the significance of the death of Jesus for us today? Well, I, I can perhaps best answer that by going back to a couple of verses in the New Testament that were written by Peter, one of the followers of Jesus. And two of his verses from his first letter in 1 Peter 2, verse 24, he says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And then in chapter 3 in verse 18, he says, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. In other words, Peter is saying the reason Jesus died on that cross just yards away from where we are sitting is that he was dying to pay the price of sin. Not his sin, he had not. He was dying to pay the price of our sins. He was a sacrifice for us. He was our substitutionary sacrifice. All of us understand the, the image of a substitute, you know, in a, in a game of soccer. Um, you know, number seven is not playing very well. The manager brings him off and the substitute goes on to do what? To play in his place. Jesus died on the cross in my place, in your place. He, he didn't have to die, but he chose to be the substitute for me, to pay the price of sin. And he did it, Peter said, once for all. Nobody else can repeat it. No one else needs to represent it. He has done it. When he died on that cross 2,000 years ago, he paid the price for sin absolutely completely. It doesn't matter how bad that sin is, how long it was ago, if we will put our faith in Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe you were doing this, you died for me, then at that moment, Jesus forgives our sin, wipes it clean, 
He brings us to a place of wholeness and healing and right standing before God. And that's the wonder of what happened 2,000 years ago, right on this spot, close to where we're sitting today. Pray for us now, Mike. Lord Jesus, here in this place where we remember that you loved us enough to die for us, not just to die as an example to show us what love looks like, but to die in our place, to pay the price of our sin. We stand amazed at such love. And we ask that you would ask each one of us to respond with a right heart and to say, yes, Lord, I believe you did it for me. Forgive my sin, wash me clean, give me a gift of new life and help me now to start to live and to continue to live as your follower, sharing this good news with others. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land, tracing the life of Jesus then and now. Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30 minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs or Bible surprises. <laughs> <laughs>